Welcome to the New Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Yan. Today, we're speaking to Hope King, a business reporter with Axios, where she covers everything from the markets and the economy to trending companies like Tesla, Apple, and Twitter, and big consumer trends. She's also the host of Thanks, THKS, the first Asian-American talk show on YouTube. Prior to that, she was an anchor for Cheddar, a live streaming financial news network, and a tech reporter with CNN in New York. That's how we first met, as colleagues on the same team at CNN, with her in the New York Bureau and myself in Hong Kong. But before all of that, Hope had a life in finance. She worked on Wall Street at Merrill Lynch for seven years. Born in Hangzhou, she moved to the U.S. at age five. With Hope, we're chatting about her recent coverage, China COVID impact on global supply chains, how China ended up with so many self-made female billionaires, and whether multinationals, if push came to shove, would leave China the way many have left Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. On top of that, we dive deep into a personal discussion about Asian-American identity and what that means for the two of us. So I'm really excited to welcome Hope today. Thank you, Sophia. It's so great to be on with you. So I thought we would start today with um, just running down the headlines to have a little chat about the kinds of stories you've been covering. One of the most immediate ones is the issue of supply chains in China and how COVID shutdown is still in year three of the pandemic, still a disruption. What have you found in your reporting? Yeah, well, in China at the moment, there are various stages of lockdown across, I think, about 16% of the country's population, so, so impacting 16% of the country's population. And it's, as you know, due to the government's zero COVID policy. What that means for the rest of the world is that you've got really important ports in Shanghai, for example, that are not operating. You have warehouses that are not operating. You have trucks who can't get in and out of the city. And that means that things that we might need are being held up. And on top of the past two years of, of supply chain issues, this continues to be another issue that uh, doesn't seem to have an end in sight. And that's because of that zero COVID policy. So I think at the moment, from the analysts that I've spoken with, I think the Chinese government and companies that are still trying to operate there are doing everything they can to keep things going a little bit. Uh, one thing that we've learned is that some factories that may be supplying chips and other components to companies like a Tesla or an Apple are requiring their workers to live in these facilities near or you know inside of these factories so that if they if they can't get it in and out for example because of the lockdowns they at least uh, can can stay there and then work and 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 try to limit some of the impact um, so you know the the that's the supply chain side of the story obviously there's a humanitarian side of it uh, you have residents in Shanghai who are going now without um, food there are um, there are a lot of issues getting them food. Uh, I had been sort of keeping up on some of the social media posts of, of those who are living in China or talking about the situation. And, you know, one of the interesting aspects of of food access in China is that there is a big fresh food culture in the country, which I think even for someone who, um, you know, was born there and, and have been living in the States and since since really since she was young, uh, we've taken advantage, uh, we've taken for granted the way that we can consume canned food here and and frozen food. That's just not something that 
um, a lot of Chinese people have either access to or are accustomed to. And so they can't stock up really. They haven't even really been stocking up. Um, so they really are dependent on on fresh produce, for example, uh, you know, ha- having that as part of their diet. Um, and so that's something that I think everyone else is also that everyone is watching very closely. Yeah, it's it's interesting that now, really, year three of the pandemic in China, that these are still the issues that um, China is dealing with. It's been so interesting to have this kind of uh, shutdown again. There's this trending hashtag on Weibo. It's 2022, like T O O. So it's 2022, right? Obviously, two zero two two. But because of the things that are happening, it's just totally deja vu for everyone. I mean, of course, there have been immediate sudden lockdowns in different cities all this time. But Shanghai is a city of like 26 million people, you know, and lockdowns are going on elsewhere in in China too, including parts of Beijing now. So it's something that we've had to live with for a while in China, but just uh, the kinds of things we've seen out of Shanghai really are a reminder of how bewildering the early days in Wuhan were. Right. And the numbers now in China are actually far um, in excess of the numbers. And I I know there have been some varying methods through which they're measuring COVID cases. The numbers that we're seeing now, I think, are driven primarily by this subset of the Omicron variant. And again, according to an analyst that I spoke with last week on the story, he believes that one of the reasons the cases are so high at the moment is because the domestic vaccines are not as effective as the ones that we've had here, you know, in the West, the Pfizer vaccines, for example. And he believes that one way the zero COVID policy might either ease or the situation might get better is if the efficacy of these vaccines improve. And so that's something that, you know, I think everyone's watching pretty closely. Early on in the pandemic, there were there was a scramble to get supplies, uh, PPE, right? Personal protective equipment. And it seemed like a lot of nations all of a sudden realized how dependent they were on China for supplies like this and for many other goods. So it's been a while now since 2020. What have you seen in terms of your interviews and all your sources? Uh, how are companies and countries starting to deal with this issue of trying to be a little bit more self-sufficient? I think it's exactly that. They're trying to be more self-sufficient. They're looking for ways to produce this in the States. And I think in terms of the overall strategy for supply chain, um, there's a you know stockpiling men- mentality as well. And instead of this sort of just uh, in time manufacturing, you know, they're doing uh, they're implementing sort of a, a, a just in case sort of mentality. And and that is to say that they are asking for more, making more, um, just in case. And we've seen that in the mindset of the consumer as well early on, um, stocking up on you know toiletries and things. And so I think a lot of the, uh, I guess, you know, the, the strategy right now for supply chain for manufacturing is to have lots of just in case inventory, just in case something you know happens. Uh, again, to the extent that we saw back in 2020. So interesting. Uh, Well, let's move on to another story you've done recently, which is about the number of billionaires that China's produced. Lots of self-made female billionaires, China producing them at a faster rate than any other country in the world. Well, I think primarily we have a number of social factors that have contributed to the rise in billionaires in China in general. Um, So to start there, I think from 
you know, your perspective as someone who obviously is there and covers this and has been covering it, we have the largest consumer population in the world, right? Over 1.4 billion people. I mean, not, not all the babies are buying, but you're buying for those those people. And so in large part, the self-made billionaires in China are catering, if you look at the companies at the top of these lists, are catering to the Chinese consumer. And so that is in large part helping drive the overall number of billionaires that are being minted in the country. When it comes to the number of female billionaires specifically, um, you know, the the researchers at the Huron Report um, largely look at some of the social factors. When you have, for example, the one child rule, you have you know, multiple generations of women who were not able to have more than one child, which also means then that they have fewer years out of the workforce, right? That's one interpretation. They have fewer children that will require them to um, to be out uh, on maternity leave. Uh, and then also the social structure of, of just the large families who live together. They have a, you know, built-in social network in China where you have grandparents who can take care of the kids and the mother can go and work then um, without having to worry about childcare. That's something that the Western nations, um, you know, in Europe anyway, have, have gotten better at, but certainly in the U.S. has been a big, uh, it, it has been a big challenge for women to decide if they want to come back to the workforce, if they can afford to come back to the workforce. Um, so I think those factors are, are largely driving this trend that you're seeing. It's interesting to think about how the changes to the one-child policy might affect this. It's interesting to think about whether or not women here want to have more kids and what that would mean for their career, and then what that means for female billionaires out of China. Yeah, I think it's hard to reverse these trends. I mean, you know, population trends, demographic trends, they, they take... Uh, just by nature of of how long it takes to grow from a child to an adult. I mean, it's generations. So I think if you are a woman who has the means to have more children, perhaps it might make sense. Um, But I think, again, if you are an only child yourself, um, I don't know what it's like to want to have more kids. You know, I'm not a mother. I don't know what goes through um, a mother's head, especially living in China when, um, you know, it's not really the cost of living so much every day that may be going up, especially if you're in a a good, decent job, white collar job, and it's paying well. But, you know, housing is a huge issue. Um, The cost of housing has in, you know, the past 20 years exploded in China. And I know a lot of people have worried about whether or not they can afford, um, you know, housing for to to buy a house uh, for, for their children or, of you know, um, you know, passing those de- those housing uh, or passing those homes down to their children. So I think that's another bubble that we're seeing um, in a very tenuous place right now. Yeah, one of the most interesting self-made female billionaires in China, I think, is this woman named Zhou Chunfei. She um, started working on the factory floor. I think she was working at a factory that made glass for watches. Uh, Long story short, she saved enough money, opened her own factory, still making glass, various glass products, uh, and eventually ended up helping Motorola develop a glass screen for one of their phones about 20 years ago. And then later on, Apple called when they were looking for someone to make glass screens for the iPhone. So it's one of these stories, it's like once in a bajillion years, you know, only in China kind of story that you could have someone like that rise really from rags to riches. I think you said it better than I could. (laughs) 
we were talking about the the wealth creation issue and economic growth. That's also part of why so many global companies are interested in building their footprint in China. All these big multinational firms. The last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of big companies leave Russia uh, as a way to stand up against Moscow to show that they aren't happy to be operating in a country that would invade another country, leading to this war in Ukraine. Um, what have you found in your reporting? I mean, what it's a big decision for big brands to make, to do something like that, to pull out of potentially lucrative markets. Uh, you know, the Russia one example is interesting because what would happen if China were to, say, invade Taiwan or China were to do something of that level on the world stage? Would other companies be willing to consider pulling out of China? I think Russia and China are different markets, largely because China is a bigger, again, consumer market for a lot of companies trying to sell globally, and it's very attractive. I think for the reasons that we talked about with supply chain, it's also difficult to extract operations when so many decades of work have, uh, you know, has has gone into building infrastructure in China to supply the world and the U.S. Let's say specifically, right, of chips of of cheaper materials. So I think that if China were to find itself in a position um, that Russia now finds itself, I think that U.S. companies, Western companies would have um, a harder time leaving. They might want to for all the right reasons, um, but they might actually not be able to. And especially if you look at how quickly some of these companies were leaving you know, Russia, they would, in a case where China was again, um, in a similar situation, I think companies would find it would take much longer to leave if they were um, even able to. For years, there have been allegations of human rights abuses in China, some really serious ones too, especially in Xinjiang and Tibet. And now we've seen what's going on in Hong Kong. And even then, a lot of companies haven't left. I mean, Tesla has opened a, a shop in, in Xinjiang. They've expanded to Xinjiang. Uh, it's interesting, right, the, that these companies are still plowing ahead. I mean, you cover Tesla. What, what do you make of this? I do think that it is curious. I think that they are, as a company, looking at, again, the number of people who are interested in Tesla as a brand, as a, as a company, as a car that they want to buy. And they are... Um, Take, I mean, I, I think what's intriguing is that they're they're taking a very similar um, approach to the way they respond to this question in the way that I think you hear Chinese government officials talk about, um, you know, interference internationally, which is that they don't want to or, or they're not going to get into that. Right. So I find that response to actually be quite interesting um, is that they'll they'll say this is the this is the country that we're operating in and you know we'll we'll follow kind of their laws but they really kind of skirt around the issue of you know addressing um the the abuses like specifically what about apple apple for years has had issues with some of its supply chain factories in china and also uh, some labor rights violations potentially what do you make of all of that apple says that it really goes through its supply chain and it you know makes sure that they are uh, operating in a way that is in line with their own human rights values. For now, I don't I don't know what recourse there is uh, unless consumers start to boycott. I mean, that's really the only 
that's the only thing that companies are afraid of is if if consumers are angry enough that they stop buying their products, which then would make them change their policy. Uh, without enough that pressure, there really doesn't seem to be, um, at least in the near term, any signs that these companies will change any of the things that they're doing. Are there other countries that would be good alternatives to China in terms of the supply chain issue? It just it strikes me that it's all really linked. These global companies want to be in China because they want access to the market. It's also a great place for them to produce whatever widgets they're making. But at the same time, that means foreign companies are so reliant on China, something that's been so uh, made so starkly clear because of COVID with the shutdowns and how that's impacted what can happen at what point uh, for different companies. So... Are there other options that companies are thinking of or could be thinking of? One big area is Southeast Asia. I mean, Malaysia has emerged as a region where there are factories that can be that can produce the chips that we need. Um, so it's still, you know, in the Asia region, labor is, is cheaper still there. I do think that there is an effort, you know, for example, even with consumer brands like going to Vietnam, for example. But, I, you know, again, I think it will take a much longer time for those resources to come online in the mass scale that China for the past, you know, 30 years has been able to produce the stuff. And so um, that that's definitely uh, something that we, we're seeing. One other resurgence uh, of, of an argument that we're seeing here in the States is onshoring or, or nearshoring. Uh, this idea of, of re- configuring our factories to to produce things here. Intel, for example, is has made um, a lot of noise in the past, you know, two years to to talk about how many chip plants they want to build and are investing in. You're seeing that because of not only, you know, what, what's happened with COVID, but because we're recognizing uh, the threat potentially geopolitically if, if something were to happen that they could really stall production. Thanks for talking us through your recent headlines, Hope. I was hoping we could move to a more personal realm now to have you tell us about your personal history, being born in China and moving to the U.S. and what it was like to grow up and to build your career. And and you've had two in two very different industries. So I was hoping you could talk us through hope (laughs) about your life. You know, I'm not really good at talking about myself. So so what do you want to know or where do you want to start or where do you... uh... I'd be interested in knowing what it was like for you to grow up uh, as an only child in the States. Um, You know, being an only child in China is not so rare, of course, because of the family planning policies, but being, so to speak, foreign in the U.S. uh, and then also being a, you know, one child in the family, all of this. I mean, what was it like for you when you were younger growing up? I think when your whole family, you know, my cousins, they were all the only child and they're respective branch of the family tree, you became siblings de facto because you were just, you know, the same age and hanging out. So it didn't feel like you were sort of the only child in a, in a culture where you saw so much family all the time. Um, so I would say while I was in China as a kid, I was uh, pretty, you know, happy and surrounded by kids and, and it, it didn't, really dawn on me that I wasn't only child until I came probably to the States and realized that um, all my friends had siblings and, you know, they would, um, they would complain, you know, in school about how much they hated their siblings. And they would, you know, during uh, sleepovers, 
tell them to go away. And, you know, when you saw, when I saw interactions like that, that was pretty clear. Okay, well, this is a big missing part of, of my life anyway. Um, and I think, you know, as you grow older, you realize how lonely it is to be an only child, to know that you're the only one um, who understands sort of your family dynamics. There's no one else that you can share um, those frustrations with and, and, you know, issues as they come along. Um, but I think as a kid, you know, you're, you're quite oblivious. And, and again, because of my large family on my mother's side specifically, um, it didn't, it didn't feel like I was the only child. What about the issue of model minority Asians, uh, being, you know, the sort of good at math, getting good grades, going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, the, <laughs> the, the five that you get, doctor, lawyer, engineer, what am I missing? Yeah. Computer scientist. I mean, did you ever feel that that was like a framework that you were being put into by people around you? I grew up largely in very white counties across the U.S. So we moved to St. Louis when, you know, my mom and I first immigrated here to meet my father. Then we lived in West Virginia and then Pennsylvania and then, um, you know, southern New Jersey. Um, I didn't really even realize that I was sort of part of a larger Asian America until I um, attended a school more in the northern central part of New Jersey. And that was a huge culture shock for me. Um, so growing up and having moved around so much, I you know went to multiple schools and my high school experience was split into two high schools. So the first part of my high school experience was in a very white town. And then by the time I uh, was about to graduate junior and senior year, that's when, you know, we're taking the SATs and prepping for college. Um, it was only then that the ambitions of Asian Americans really came to light. Had I not gone to high school in this part of New Jersey, you know, when I think back on it, I don't know where I would have taken my life and my career. When you're around other very ambitious, very smart, um, you know, people who look like you, um, you sort of, and you're, again, very close to New York, you get caught up in thinking and, and wanting, you know, certain things. I didn't know that I uh, was ambitious as I was until I was thrown in with um, people who were more ambitious than I was. And um, that really baked me into a kind of person um, that uh, you find talking to you on your podcast. Um, you know, uh, since you know me, my personal life, you, you know that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like fairly easygoing. But, you know, for sure, in the last like 15 years or whatever of my career, uh, you know, I've been in this mentality of like, achieve, achieve, achieve. Um, I don't think I ever really wanted to be a scientist. I think law maybe was of interest to me. Um, but when I was growing up, I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to be a writer and a producer. And, you know, I was involved in a um, learning arts program in elementary school where I had professors, uh, or I guess they weren't professors, they were they were just teachers then, um, who loved like my short stories and would have me recite and read my stories to other classes you know, I was one of the first multimedia storytellers. I mean, one of the first short stories I wrote, I composed like a piano soundtrack that I played while I was reading like my creepy story that I wrote. I mean, that's that's kind of the the person I remember 
being like as a kid. Um, and then you get thrown into, you know, again, a very competitive high school. And then I became involved with the future business leaders of America. And I, you know, ran for office of like six different clubs because at this high school, everybody was in six different clubs and did all of these things. Um, and then it just sort of, you know, grew from there. Um, but that's the backstory. Uh, so, you know, I always knew that finance wasn't something that satisfied the every morsel of my being. Um, you know, the, the creative stuff is really what gets me going. And um, so at a certain point, I knew that I couldn't really stay in finance any longer without giving up more time in years. Um, and, and what that meant was fewer time in years in exploring something I really wanted to do. But also climbing up that ladder means that the opportunity cost only grows um, as you stay. So I, at a point where um, I felt I was, you know, um, that I had learned everything that I could learn, um, you know, in my sort of type A kind of way. Uh, I even had like a literal like a game plan that I wrote out. And I said, I need to make this amount of money. I need to be this level in finance and then I'll leave. And when all of those got checked off, I said, well, there's the list. So we got to leave and we got to move on. And um, that's when I, you know, applied to grad school. Um, I, you know, got into uh, journalism school and went to Columbia and, um, you know, I haven't really looked back since. Um, but all of those things like leading up to all of those moments, uh, were really driven by, um, sort of my environment. Um, you know, I, I don't think my parents ever really dictated like what I should do or what I shouldn't do, but it was clear what I shouldn't do, which was, you know, all the creative stuff. I wanted to major in environmental science. Um, I mean, those were all things that were uh, pretty much, you know, uh, discouraged for me. Um, so by process of elimination, it was like multi finance and econ, right? Um, and, um, and so, so yeah, I, I, I feel like I've, um, framed it in my head as I sort of worked on my plan B before going into my plan A, because, um, you know, if I ever really failed at the creative stuff, I could always go back to, to finance and do that. I want to backtrack a little bit. You said something interesting that you didn't sort of plug into an Asian American world until much later. Do you remember when or how exactly that happened? Yeah, I remember walking into my high school in um, in Edison, New Jersey, and um, seeing more Asian faces than I had ever seen in my entire life um, outside of going back and visiting my family in China. And it just hit me you know, instantaneously that this is a whole new world. Um, I think it was also the recognition that um, I had a lot of that I had a lot in common with these people who I'd never met um, simply by the way that we were raised and and you know a lot of these uh, you know students were also um, the children of immigrants um, and then I think also you know at that age um, you know as a as a young girl. 
you know, it was the first time that I think anyone really paid attention to me, like, and found me attractive. And that was a really, uh, honestly, huge shock because, um, you know, for a long time, as you're an awkward middle schooler and, you know, young high schooler, and you're going through the hallways and you're, you know, crushing on this person or that person, and it's never returned. I think it really messes with your head uh, a lot about, you know, um, just your value as like a woman at the time, right? And I think this high school was the first time that I think I had people um, who found me attractive. And that was really strange um, to me. And, um, you know, I think that was another turning point, or at least a moment of, of realization that I was in a very different world. Mm-hmm. What about even further back when you were much younger and living in more majority white areas where there were less non-white people, did you know and feel different? I mean, were there things that happened that made you realize, oh, I'm not like everyone else? I only felt different when I was at home with my parents. When I was out in the world, you know, I don't think kids really do see quote unquote race. I will say also that I, I do have a selective memory that probably has repressed a lot of terrible stuff that happened. Um, but I generally don't think I was that I ever experienced, you know, too many um, of those, uh, you know, moments where I was being taunted for being Chinese or, or different. Um, I mean, I, I definitely remember being taunted, I mean, a couple of times, you know, those playground um, little songs they sing to you uh, are in your head. Um, but uh, I, I think it wasn't, it really wasn't all that different for me while I was. Um, you know, in school. I mean, my mom would do weird things. Like all, I think we had these stories about like weird lunches and things like that. Um, which I don't know. I mean, I feel like I hear that story so much now where, uh, it, it's just become sort of like, oh yeah, yeah, I went through that. Um, but if I would really think about how like kids treated me, like, again, I'm probably am repressing a lot of memories <laughs> and I'm old enough now where I have other things that I've had to worry about, but I can't remember too many of them. I also think it's interesting that you said that you were then surrounded by people who looked like you, who had different interests and hobbies and ambitions, and that that in its own way was inspiring to you. Because that's, in a way, that's the model minority, but producing, I mean, so it's often, I feel like model minority is often talked about as a way to, talked about in a more negative light, because it can be so limiting. It's interesting, because it sounds like in that sense that that sort of model minority, at least in that moment in your life, was a positive thing. I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, positive or negative, but it was definitely a driving force in how I was shaped and how I went into college and in my career. Um, I think it's funny that you use the word inspiring um, because I felt like I was being molded by that environment in in the sense of um, this, this competitiveness. Like I never had that in me uh, until I really got to the school. And it wasn't until I was around, again, many people who were driven and smart and ambitious that I sort of fell into that and had to do the same thing. Like that, that was an early taste of being in the rat race, to be quite honest. Um, and again, a lot of it is the proximity to New York City. So, you know, a lot of the the kids in my high school wanted to go into banking. Um, a lot of them, <clears throat> you know, did go into law or medicine. Um, and because those two didn't like specifically appeal to me, you know, business was something that, that seemed 
more interesting. Um, so, you know, to your point about like the model minority myth, I mean, I don't think that I knew obviously that I was going into that world or, or living up in, into that definition of a model minority, but I think that's certainly, I think that's certainly w- what actually happened. Um, and, uh, if I think about again, like my past schools, I didn't feel any of those pressures to like make it big or do any of those things like in the world. Right. I didn't, I didn't think about any of those things, but again, this was junior year of high school, senior year of high school, you know, in New York city, uh, adjacent suburbs and, you know, with a lot of other children of immigrants. So I think it was like all of those factors combined that really, um, that, that shaped me in a very, very different way than, than I had been in all the other places that I lived. The thing that you said about being around people who looked like you doing things uh, struck me because you've also before said to me, um, you've talked about different Asian American women who were in the news, uh, who were your role models growing up, being able to turn on the, turn on the TV or to be able to see, you know, to see someone doing something who looks like you. I think there's, yeah, it's interesting because I guess in a way it gives you a sense that something's possible. I'd be curious to know what you think. You know, I talk a lot about this. Well, we've talked about this too before, but it's an interesting question to think about. Do you need role models to help, help you stretch your imagination? I think you absolutely have to. I mean, yes, when I was younger, there were two women who are Asian on television, Connie Chung and Lisa Ling. I watched Lisa Ling every morning in middle school, Channel One News. And um, it was something that for me inspired wonder that a young girl could report from Afghanistan. Um, That opened up a world to me that would not have been possible watching anybody else do that. Um, you know, sitting down and watching a Connie Chung interview. I mean, Barbara, Barbara Walters was also one of my, you know, role models. But, you know, to see Connie Chung do it, I mean, that means that I could do it if she could do it. Um, I think in the more recent, um, you know, years of, of the the community coming together um, and this awareness that's that's really sparked inside of me, you know, personally, I've come to realize that, you know, a lot of people inspire me, you know, I mean, you inspire me, um, you know, watching what you've done with this podcast and with your own reporting. Um, and so that proximity is even more important in some ways than these role models out there, because you are even closer to me than, you know, a uh, Lisa Ling on, on television. You have, um, a similar, you know, um, life story to mine. We're of similar age. We're, you know, from similar neighborhoods. And, and so I have been more aware of how my friends have inspired me, um, in, in, in little ways, you know, every day. And I love that even more. And so, um, I think role models is like, you know, big shoes and a big pedestal. Um, but again, when I come and look at my immediate circle of friends and, and acquaintances, I mean, a lot of my friends and acquaintances are Asian and they're doing amazing things. And so, you know, just seeing that they can do it gives me courage and, and inspiration to um, to model myself after as well. 
where do you think the state of Asian American identity is now in the U.S.? I, I mean, I personally haven't been home in a couple of years because of the pandemic and all sorts of other journalist visa restriction issues out of China that we don't need to get into right now. <laughs> but I think everybody who listens to the podcast knows about these issues. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, I, I feel really honestly out of touch. Um, so I'm curious for your take on what it feels like there now and where the conversation is and where you think it's going. This is off Black Lives Matter. I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of, in some parts of the U.S. at least, for pretty in-depth discussion about Asian Amer American identity. I think there has been an awakening in many people who have not thought about their identity in the past um, as someone of Asian descent living in America. Um, you know, I use those words carefully in, in one story that I wrote recently for Axios with two other colleagues of mine. Um, you know, I'm careful to use that phrase because I think um, semantics are important. And I think for the most part, we can all agree that we're all human beings. We're all people who, you know, are American or are living in America. Um, and we do have this Asian heritage. And, and I think, you know, um, I, I would like for us to identify first as, as like part of the human race and then secondarily as, you know, of, of American nationality. And, and I think, you know, being Asian is just one part of our identity. I think that's one thing that I certainly am um, more keen on you know, specifying not only for myself, but for other people, because I think, you know, we are also women, you know, we are also immigrants, like this intersectionality is really important, because there are people that I have more in common with, um, who, you know, are only children, and they might be of Hispanic heritage, right, um, than somebody who might have four siblings and are wealthy and are, you know, uh, Chinese American. I mean, th those things don't necessarily, um, make, uh, you know, us, you know, closer or, or not together. Um, but it's all of these life experiences that do. But I think the question of like, where are Asians in America right now? You know, I think um, we're in a really exciting place in terms of visibility. There has never been more attention on people of Asian descent in America, their stories, their pain, their they're suffering through the last two years, but also, you know, Asians have, have really stood out in sports. They have stood out in media and politics. And we have, you know, the first uh, vice president who is a woman who is of, you know, black American heritage and Indian um, heritage and, you know, Asian, South Asian heritage. Uh, so there have also been really tremendous strides um, and the two together, I think, really are a striking um, duality of, of visibility that, you know, is is a time where if you are a person of Asian descent in America, where you can try to capitalize on that in some way, because you you know that your stories matter at this moment. And I don't know how much longer the moment will last, um, but at least it, it, it is that empowering sense of um you know, community that I think has given more people the courage to stand up, to be proud, to share their stories. Um, but then at the same time, you know, here in New York, like I still now am standing really far away from the train tracks. I watch my back. I run into my house and close the door really quickly behind me because, 
I've seen all the horrible attacks against women, especially of Asian descent. And, you know, and that's the duality too of visibility is that, you know, people are taking notice of maybe, you know, you and I as Asian, uh, you know, folks and, and maybe wanting to harm us for, you know, reasons uh, that are either hateful or because of mental health. And so I think that's the complexity of, of, of what we're, you know, living in. Now, as somebody who has only recently really th- thought about her own identity and woken up to it, um, I have been many times, you know, schooled by the younger generation of, 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 of uh, journalists and activists um, who have said, well, we've lived with this kind of forever. Uh, you know, Asians have been attacked, uh, have been lynched, you know, in, in America. Um, and it's only now that people are paid, paying attention to those stories. And I definitely agree with that. And I think that's an important point to make is that just because, you know, we're coming to terms with it now with more people um, does not mean that we as uh, a group of, you know, minorities in, in America have not experienced in the past. And we're finally now, you know, teaching that history. Does it feel less tense in the U.S. in terms of the violence? It seems like it's been a bit of time since there have been, I mean, there have been so many violent crimes, but at least it seems like it's been a bit of time since at least I last heard of uh, an attack. No, no, they're still happening. <laughs> almost every, you know, almost every week we we see some uh, elderly person, maybe or a woman, you know, being stabbed or attacked or or brutalized somehow. Um, I think there has been a collective. Um, you know, trauma where most people have wanted to uh, turn it off a little bit because it's just, just too much. I mean, I think at one point during the pandemic, you know, I woke up every day for, you know, maybe a week or a week and a half straight where something happened, you know, in in, in one part of the country or another uh, to an Asian person. And I've had friends who have told me that they've unfollowed accounts and that they've, um, again, completely tuned out to the, um, the, the, uh, the, the the reporting on on all these tra- traumatic cases because it's it's really you know not good for their mental health and I can understand that so um, I think if that's the case maybe fewer people are sharing the stories as widely it may be so that makes it seem like they've uh, sort of lessened um, but uh, they by no means have slowed down or or sort of stopped I also have a, a personal question for you. In the two different industries you've worked in, uh, both on Wall Street and then on the other side of Wall Street, covering Wall Street as a journalist in the news business, have you ever felt uh, any sort of racial bias or any moment where you felt like you were discriminated against uh, or things weren't so gumping, so fair? (laughs) I think it's always in the back of my mind, right? If something happens and I feel it's unfair, um, it's the first question that always comes to my mind. Was this because I'm Chinese? Uh, it has happened in, in both my careers. Um, it has happened, um, in varying, um, I would say, you know, degrees of severity to the subtle, to the very overt. But I think it's impossible for me to, you know, separate that this is again, part of who I am, with everything else, you know, also being a younger woman in finance was certainly not helpful, you know, so you sort of go through these institutions with uh, marks on your record, uh, or, you know, your um, you have, you know, certain uh, branding that uh, separates you immediately and, and sets you back, I think. So, um, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think in, in both industries, there have been 
you know, many, many cases where um, I, I think that for sure, um, had I been a different race, um, you know, different gender or whatever, but definitely had I not been Asian, that uh, some certain outcomes would have been different for me. Great. Wow. We've covered a lot. Yeah. Well, we could go on forever, Sophia. We could go on forever. Well, I think we have a limit for our podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, gosh. We could do this forever. Uh, okay. Well, time for recommendations. Mm. What are yours this week? Well, I think I've been pretty good about meditating before I get out of bed. Um, so there's this new uh, routine that I've started to get into and it's really helped, um, to set me in a good, to put me in a good place. And I think one meditation in general, but two, just knowing that I did something to take care of myself first before attending to the rest of the world and everything else, um, really allows me to, to kind of be gentle and, and, and care for myself and know that I did do something to prioritize me first. Um, and I think that also, uh, you know, helps with the rest of the day. So that's something that I, if you can spare, you know, just 10 minutes, um, sometimes, you know, I, I I still have to hop out of bed and do something, but I'll always try to make it one of the first things that I do. Um, and it just eases you from that world of, you know, sleeping and, 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 self-care and rest, uh, to one where you are at the mercy of, you know, the rest of the world, maybe the rest of the day. Awesome. And what about something that you've come across like a book or a show or anything like that? I've recently started to watch Pachinko. It's on Apple TV plus. Um, it's based on the novel and it's just beautiful in the way that it's depicted, um, and shot. Uh, it actually is, um, a, a TV series in three different languages in, in Japanese, Korean, and in English. Um, and it really, really weaves together. I think the intergenerational, um, storylines of a family and, and also looks at history through a non-Western lens, which I think is really, uh, important, um, you know, for, for, for self-awareness, but also to, to get a bigger picture of the world. Awesome. I've heard really good things about the show. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it's so good. It's really, it's so it, good. yeah, it is really good. Cool. Well, my recommendation to everyone listening is to check out Hope's show on YouTube, THKS, the Hope King show, pronounced thanks, the first Asian American talk show on YouTube. It's, uh, what days are you doing it now, Hope? I wish I could do it every Wednesday. It was either Wednesday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, uh, or I'm trying out a new night on Mondays. Uh, but, uh, look, I mean, this is what I was talking about. Like you inspired me with your podcast to be able to do this. And, you know, I know you guys have a great team and, um, and this is something that I'd love to do, uh, as well, sort of to keep it going. So definitely check it out. Awesome. And how can people find, uh, find you on other platforms? Uh, my handle is just, uh, at Hope King on Twitter and on Instagram, it's at Lisa Hope King. And then if you Google uh, on YouTube, T-H-K-S, uh, that should come up. Very cool. Uh, well, for my self-care recommendation this week, it's a little bit, uh, it's not the same, but some are sort of linked a little bit to your meditation routine. Uh, but it's a breathing technique, which is, uh, I think, great for getting you into the right headspace to then have a short meditation. And so I do this one 
in the morning or also in the evening if I'm having trouble sleeping. It's pretty basic. It's just inhaling and exhaling on a one to two ratio. So if you inhale for a count of four, exhale then on a count of eight. And you can gradually increase your count for each breath or each time you try this technique. I find it really useful for recentering and refocusing so that I can just check in with myself and how I feel. Well, I guess we could do it on this podcast, Hope. <laughs> you want to take one long, deep breath? You in New York, me in Beijing. <laughs> 12 hours sure, apart. Wherever you okay, want. ready? Inhale. One, two, three, four. And exhale. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You can keep doing this on and on. You can go to count of five, exhale on a count of ten. The whole point is to have a longer exhale than your inhale. How do you feel? It was only one breath. <laughs> that was great. I love I love being able to do it with you together. <laughs> awesome. You've been listening to the New Voices podcast with me, Sophia Yan, New Voices board member and China correspondent for The Telegraph. This show was edited by Megan Patel. Music is by April Drew. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. Check us out on Twitter at New Voices, on Instagram at New Voices underscore network, and our website, newvoices.com. Support our activities, events, trainings, online magazine, this podcast, and more via Patreon. Patrons are invited to play an active role in our community. More information at www.patreon.com slash new voices. <laughs>